again, the Lord has given us another opportunity. We think of the days as they come and go. We realize that each day is a, a special day, special opportunities. I think as the morning dawns of each new day, we should grasp hold of that new day. We should take it as we would, we would take a precious gift within our hands. One thing that we all realize about each day, and that is that we only live at one time. We'll never live this day again. This day is just as, as uh, unique as a snowflake, or it's just as unique as a fingerprint. It's an awesome thing when we stop to realize that God is going to hold us accountable for how we live today, for what we did today. Time will not be the theme of heaven, but it is one of the themes of, of our present state. We're very much controlled and governed by time, aren't we? Every one of you. I wonder how many times you looked at the clock today. How many times did you look at the calendar? You might be able to tell me that, but I suppose you've probably forgotten how many times you've looked at the clock. It's just too many. We're such a time-oriented people. We've been singing about heaven and what a glorious prospect to realize that when we get there, we'll not have to keep glancing at the clock. What a burden that is. What a burden it is to always be controlled by time. What a burden it is to be controlled by a telephone ringing and schedules and all of these things. What a blessed time that we will be able to, to experience there in the glory world when all of these things will be laid aside. We are glad for each of you that are here tonight, for those that are here for the first time, as well as those of you who have come faithfully night after night. We trust that you're here praying tonight and have come with an open heart. We'd like to uh, turn to the book of Acts for a, a lesson to read at this time. Acts chapter 16. <clears throat> and we'll begin reading at verse 16. Acts chapter 16, begin at verse 16. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, 
charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed and the keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors opened, he drew out, of, out his sword and would have killed himself supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do, do thyself no harm for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized he and his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And when it was day, the magistrates sent a surgeon saying, let these men go. And the keeper of the prison told the saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, they have beaten us openly uncondemned, being Romans and have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privately? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. We have a passage of scripture here that has often created an interest as we have read over it. In the various times that we find that God's people have been in prison. You know, many of God's choicest people have, have served prison sentences. Not only the Bible, but in the Bible, but clear up to the present period of time. We might wonder, well, why does it have to be that uh, God would allow his people to be thrust into prison, to suffer imprisonment, to be deprived of their freedom. We don't have all of the answers uh, for that, but you know, you can begin with, with Joseph, and you can go on down through the Bible, the various ones who have been imprisoned, and in many cases we can see that God was working there in prison all the time. Sometimes we, look, we might look at an imprisonment as a sign of God's displeasure. But if we're a true child of God, and even if we were to be thrown in prison, how would you look at that tonight? If you were imprisoned for your faith, for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, how would you look at that? Would you look at that as, as God's frown upon you or as God's smile? Last night we, we talked about the countenance and uh, one thing that we didn't really get into is that God has a countenance also. I believe in a sense he can smile upon his children. In another sense he can frown. He can show his displeasure as well as show his pleasure. 
And it should be our desire as God's people that we would want to so conduct ourselves, whether it would be in prison or whether it would be out of prison, that God would smile upon us, that God would be pleased with our conduct. We think of some of the greatest people being in prison, like Peter, and here we have the occasion of Paul tonight and Silas. Being in prison, they hadn't really done anything, had they? Anything wrong, they had done a plenty. They had done plenty, sure enough. But they hadn't done anything wrong in the eyes of God. The only thing that they had done was simply to uh, uh, cast the evil spirit out of this damsel. And those that had been receiving profit as a means of that evil spirit were, were roused up and had them thrown in, in prison. And uh, that's kind of the background for our lesson tonight. We'd like to start there at verse 25. You know, sometimes God works in the most uh, unusual time and in the most unusual way. And the hour of the day within the 24-hour period was midnight. I wonder if we would recognize God working in our life if he would, if he would rouse us sometimes at midnight. If he would shake us at midnight, would we be able to recognize that as the hand of God? That was the case here uh, with uh, Paul and Silas. It says, and at midnight, Paul and Silas sang, they praised, they prayed and sang praises unto God. I think this is an interesting thing. Here it was, midnight, the time when ordinarily people would be asleep. But they were, they were in a distressing situation. And what better way to spend hours of sleeplessness than it would be to uh, spend them in, in praise and prayer and meditation to our Heavenly Father. How many of you have spent restless nights, sleepless nights? Maybe sometimes we toss and turn upon our bed. And maybe we wet our pillows with tears. Possibly the best way to spend those moments would be just like Paul and Silas did when they were in the prison and they uh, prayed and sang praises unto God so that the prisoners heard them. You know, we might think of it as being an inopportune time, but when it comes to singing praises and, and praying and serving the Lord, there's no inopportune time. It's always time to serve the Lord. That's what our spiritual clock should read to us, should tell us that it's always time to serve the Lord. It's always the proper time to pray. The Bible says in season and out of season. We need to witness, we need to testify, reprove, rebuke, and so forth, in season and out of season. And I think that we find Paul and Silas doing that. They found this a good time to pray and praise the Lord. <clears throat> They had plenty to pray about, didn't they? Yes, they had plenty to pray about. Here they were imprisoned. They were, uh, they were being deprived of going their way, going on their journey, and doing the things that they felt were necessary to do in, in serving the Lord and proclaiming the gospel. And they had been detained. How, how, um, how better could they have been spending their time? In the next verse it says, And then suddenly there was a great earthquake. God's presence was made known by a great earthquake. I wonder if we have to have an earthquake, though, to recognize God's presence. I've had people tell me, and maybe you have also, that they were going to start serving the Lord when something would strike them down. 
They were waiting for a, uh, a, 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 an experience like Paul had uh, on the uh, Jericho Road. Uh, you know those people who have told me that, they ha they're not serving the Lord yet. In some cases, that's been 30 or 35 years ago. It takes more than an earthquake, folks. It takes a work of the Holy Spirit speaking within our heart. And sometimes that might just be a still small voice, a still small voice speaking to us. It doesn't always often come like a stroke of lightning. God doesn't always speak to us through an earthquake or through a thunderclap, but it might be a still small voice. And so this, there was a great earthquake, it says, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open. I like that. I hope that we can all rejoice in what God can do. God can, can open the doors of our heart even. God can open the doors of our mind, just like he opened the doors of this prison through that earthquake. <clears throat> and it impacted the souls of a lot of people. And that's what we're going to be talking about here. It says, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And I'm, I'm assuming from this that there were more people in the prison than just Paul and Silas. It says everyone's bands were loosed. So there were possibly a number of prisoners there uh, that experienced the, the blessing of having those doors open. You know, when, when the Lord affects us, when the Lord deals with our lives in a positive way, should it just affect us as an individual? Shouldn't it affect our whole families? I think it should affect the whole family. If God deals with one person here in this congregation, it should indeed affect the entire church family. It should affect us all. And that's one lesson that we learn from our, our scripture here tonight. Everyone's bands were loosed and the keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself supposing that the prisoners had been fled. This was a terrifying experience for this, this jailer to find all of his prisoners having fled. Uh, from what I've read on, on this, I understand that the prisoner, that the jailer was responsible for all those prisoners. He was responsible with his life. He was putting his life on the line to guard those prisoners and to secure them there in that prison. In other words, uh, if they escaped, uh, he would have to pay with his life. That could be the, the uh, price that he would have to pay. And so it says that seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners have fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. <coughs> and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I'd like for us to think a little bit uh, concerning the language that the jailer used there. I imagine this jailer was like most jailers. He, he probably was a hard-boiled character. He probably didn't usually call his prisoners sirs, do you think? What do you think he might have called his prisoners? He probably called them by 
maybe the most vile names and used the most vile words that he could possibly uh, call to mind to call the attention of his prisoners. Probably anything but sirs. But now he was calling them sirs. A change was taking place in this man's heart. And I think that that's a good lesson for us because it helps us to understand what converting grace does in an individual's life. You know it can change a lot of things. It can even change the way that we talk. It can change our speech. It can change the way that we talk. It changes our attitudes. It changes just everything that we do in life. Everything is affected in our life by the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ comes into our life, it touches every area of your life. If you do not allow Christ to touch every area of, his, of your life, as I understand, the loving Christ is going to back off. And he's going to wait until we're, we're ready to allow him to touch those areas of our life. Now the jailer says, sirs. He doesn't call them by a vile name. A change had already started to take place in his life. You know, he, he also was, was concerned about different things probably than he'd ever been concerned before. Possibly before he was wondering, what must he do to be rich? What must he do to be great? What must he do to be a great uh, a jailer? And have people uh, uh, look up to him as having a great reputation as a jailer. He, he possibly had asked those things before. He possibly asked uh, himself, what must I do to be healthy? What must I do to have things for my family? Possessions for my family and uh, a comfortable home and all these things. But now he was concerned about one thing. And that's an indication that, that God has touched this individual's life. It's an indication that God touches our life when we start being concerned about our salvation, about the great needs of our heart. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Salvation was the main concern. Folks, if salvation is not the main concern of our life, of our heart tonight, something is wrong. Something is wrong. Everything else must be subservient to that of salvation in the believer's life. If there are other things that take precedent over our salvation, we need to stop. We need to turn around. We need to reconsider. We need to reconsider what God has done for us. We need to reconsider where we are going. We need to reconsider what God's purpose is for us in our life. We can seek many things in life and, and salvation, it seems like the uh, the clouds can come between us and salvation. And we no longer see it. I had to think of that great big cloud that we saw coming in to church, a big thunderhead. It looked like it was sitting right over Dallas Center here. I suppose it was on beyond that. Do you know we couldn't see beyond that cloud, could we? That's right, we couldn't see beyond that cloud. And so it is in our life. Sometimes there's things that get between us and that which is more important than the cloud. Let's be careful uh, that we don't allow anything to obscure salvation in our home in heaven. I appreciated the theme of the singing tonight. And sometimes we, uh, we get too far away from that, but we, we need to remember that uh, that, is our, uh, that is our goal in mind, that we might reach heaven. That is our home. 
We don't have any eternal dwelling place here. Everything is transitory. It's all passing. It's soon going to pass away. But we hope to soon be together in heaven. We had the blessed experience of visiting Sister Beulah in the nursing home. She's approaching almost 100 years of age. Most of us probably will not come close to that. But you know, when you get to that age in life, you know that heaven is very near. Heaven is very near. What a, a blessing it can be for us to look forward to that. Another thing that we learned from this jailer was that he was not inquiring about other people, but he was thinking about himself. The focus was right exactly where it should have been. He wasn't inquiring what others must do. He wasn't thinking of what others must do. He wasn't saying like the man in the Bible, like the disciple says, what must this man do? But he was thinking of himself. And isn't that exactly where the focus needs to be tonight? As we think of this lesson here, the focus needs to be on ourselves. What must I do to be saved? What is lacking in my life? What does the Lord see in my life uh, that is falling short of his will and of his glory? Also, he was convinced that something needed to be done. Are we convinced tonight? How convinced are we? If there is a lack in our life that something needs to be done. Are, are we uh, willing to just kind of uh, uh, go around the problem? Push the problem back in the corner. This man was convinced that something needed to be done and I think that he was willing to do whatever was required of him. They answered him. They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. That was the result of his inquiring. If he had never inquired, if he had never been a seeker, we would never know about this jailer today. We know about this jailer today because he was, an, he was a seeker. He was an inquirer. I have to think of the scripture that says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That's what God wants us all to do. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he, may, while he is near. How many people do you think there are out in the world today whom the Lord sought, but they never sought the Lord? The Lord seeks us with, an, with a never-dying love, and he wants us to reciprocate and seek him also. <clears throat> this verse 31 is a wonderful verse. It's kind of the sum of, a, of the gospel in, in, a, in a very few words. Or they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Oh, what a blessed scripture this is. What a, what a great revelation this is. What it must have meant to that jailer to know that not only could he be saved, there was salvation offered to him, but also it was for his household. As we read down there, we find that his whole house became involved. You see, he was struck by the earthquake but it radiated out into all of his household. Folks, if the blessing of the Lord has been upon your life, don't hold it in. Let it radiate out to your household, to your community, to your workers, the people that you work with, uh, the, the people that you do business with. So it says he took him the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. 
I remember a baptism that we had a number of years ago. I'm not sure when it was, but it was done by Carlite. Now I know there's been baptisms that's been done by lantern light, by flashlights, by bonfires along the bank. It would seem as an inopportune time. But you know there's a sense of urgency through this lesson also. And all through the scripture, God's message to mankind comes forth with a sense of urgency. There's urgency about it. Don't put it off. When the Lord deals with you, respond. Respond immediately. Don't hesitate. I believe that's a message that God would have us all to, to accept this evening. If, God's answer, if, if God calls, answer. One of the things that has really irritated me, and it really grinds me, when you might ask somebody to do something, and they say, wait. You ever have that experience? That's been our experience quite a bit. Maybe it's because of, of the culture that we've been a part of. Maybe you, don't, maybe you don't run into that so much, but that grinds on me uh, so hard when you ask something of someone and they say, wait, wait. I believe that we're to be quick respondents. And if we say wait to one another, the possibility is, is that we'll say wait to God. Just like those people that I mentioned 30, 35 years ago that said they would be a Christian someday. Basically, that, what they're saying is wait, isn't it? Wait. There's a possibility that you'll wait so long that the Lord will no longer speak to your heart. That's a serious matter to consider. Verse 32, it says, And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in their house. And uh, then it says, And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his heart. Why was he rejoicing? Because the burden had been rolled away. That's the way I understand this scripture. The burden had been rolled away. The burden of sin, the weight of sin. All of the past had been rolled away. What a wonderful privilege it is to take all of our past and take it to Calvary. And put it under the blood. Then we can rejoice. The burden has been rolled away. The children sing that song that probably us adults ought to take to heart also. Rolled away, rolled away, rolled away. Every burden of my heart rolled away. Oh, what a blessed experience it is and privilege that we have tonight, beloved, that every burden of our heart can be rolled away. It goes on and says, every sin had to go neath the crimson flow. Rolled away, rolled away, rolled away. Every burden of my heart rolled away. It was no, it's no wonder to me that the jailer was rejoicing. It's no wonder to me that people come up out of the watery grave rejoicing. Tears of rejoicing coming out of their eyes. Their body shaking with emotion. I want to tell you folks, salvation is an emotional experience. It should be an emotional experience. If we can go through that experience with a dry eye, we must have something either wrong with our tear ducts or something wrong in the experience itself. Because I believe that's, that that is the, is, is the great experience of a lifetime. To experience what that, that jailer experienced and his household experienced there. You know, we might say, well, why couldn't have they waited till morning? Why couldn't have they waited until morning? 
Well, I have something to say unto you about that too. In the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John, we read these words, and as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. That last verse, Jesus says, I must work the works of God, of him that sent me, while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. I said that the whole message of the gospel is given with a sense of urgency. And folks, when the time comes that a person has, has truly accepted the Lord, then I believe that they need to, be, they need to go on and uh, take the next steps that the Lord would lead them in. I'll, I'll relate a little experience that I had in my own life. There were four young boys. The youngest was 17 and the oldest, I believe, was about 25. And they had it in their mind that they were going to go across the country. They were going to travel from California to Indiana. And there they were going to see friends and relatives and also be with the church. And so, as young boys will often do, they thought, well, they are gonna, they're not going to waste any time. They'll drive all night. And so, they put gas in the car, and away they started out. And they drove and drove and got somewhere about in the Midwest. Maybe it was along in here somewhere. I'm not sure just where it was. It's been a long time ago. But I was the uh, junior member of that team. And we had driven all night. I think we were around in Missouri somewhere. This was back in the 50s, and we pulled into a gas station early in the morning, and oh, we were so tired. And uh, we uh, filled up with gas. There was no self-serve that day. We filled up with gas and pulled the car around to the side of the gas station, and we were all going to go in and, and uh, freshen up a little bit in the restroom. And so we went and brushed our teeth and combed our hair and washed our faces and, and uh, stretched our legs and got in the car and drove off. And we drove about uh, maybe 20 or 25 miles down the road, and all of a sudden behind us, here comes the flashing lights and the sirens. And uh, we, we wondered, well, what have we done? We haven't done anything. And so we pulled over, and here comes the, the cops with their guns and their badges and everything. And uh, we were shaking in our boots, so to speak, because they weren't very nice to us at all. They didn't appreciate the fact that we'd left that gas station without paying for gas. And uh, we, were, we were treated as, as, as rough criminals. We were told that they, we would have to follow them. We couldn't go back on our own, but we would have to follow them uh, back to, the, to town, and, and uh, we would, they would see then what they were going to do. They didn't say whether we were going to be thrown into prison or what was going to happen to us. But uh, uh, we had to turn around and go back. Well, it, it all worked out pretty good, but we, we received a very stiff reprimand from the gas station owner as well as from the police. And uh, we're treated as though we had intentionally driven off without paying for the gas, which was not the case at all. We'd intended to pay for the gas. But the thought is that we 
we should have done it. We should have paid for the gas, and we should have done it then and there. We should have done it the first thing before we did anything else. The thought is, do it now. Do it now. And I believe that's the thought that we have coming forth through here, the thought of urgency. The thought of, of uh, making our peace with God. If there's any of you that are here tonight and you haven't made your peace with God, I would say, do it now. Do it now. Don't, don't, don't wait until uh, evil days come. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Remember Him when He is calling. When the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, do it now. Do it now. That seems to, ha seems to have rung in my ears for many, many years. Do it now. Do it now. You know, the question is asked here, what must I do to be saved? I wonder if we've ever considered the question, what must I do to be lost? What must one do to be lost? Well, first of all, we all come into this world a lost soul. That's something that we all have to accept. We come into the world a lost soul. We are in a state of innocency for a while. We all understand that. But... Uh, after, short, shortly, we lose that state of innocency and we become a lost soul. But even after we accept the Lord and we give him our heart, as his word says, my son, give me thy heart, and we experience that. But let's say that we, ex we experience salvation. What must we do to be lost? I think there's some things that we can watch for in our lifetime that can be warning signals. And I might just mention a few of them tonight. Things that could be warning sing signals for those of you that are, are believers tonight. Maybe you've walked many years. Maybe you've pulled many years in the saddle. And you've had your hand to the plow. And you've worked hard. And you've trusted the Lord. And you've sown in his field. But you know, I, I believe that we always need to be on our guard. As the song says, my soul be on thy guard, 10,000 foes arise. The hosts of sin are pressing hard to draw thee from the skies. And we need to remember that. And this is a warning to us. This is much a warning to us who are believers as it is to you tonight who may not have ever uh, given your heart to the Lord. I believe one of the warning signs that we might think of as we think of the thought, what must I do to be lost, is in the area of our interest. The area of our interest. Are we still as interested in things of the Lord as we were when we first made that, that first step of salvation? Do we still have that zeal? Do we still have that fervor? Do we still have that desire to serve the Lord? Are we as interested in getting to Sunday school? Are we as interested in, in being a part of the church? Are we as interested in being there on Wednesday night? You know, I don't believe the church's uh, life is going to rise any higher than its prayer, prayer life. These are some things that we need to take a look at as we would consider the thought, what must I do to be lost? It's an awful thought, and I would rather not speak on some of this, these things. And I know perhaps these past nights, maybe I've spoken on some pretty negative things. I realize that.
But I think nevertheless it's things that we, we need to take a good honest look at. Because we find many people kind of losing interest in the things of the Lord. How interested are you in memorizing scripture? How interested are you in prayer and meditation? How interested are you in visiting the shut-ins and the sick? I believe that this can be a, a one of the warning signals. Folks, if we find that our interest is waning, turn around. Turn around. Do it now. Go back and pay the bill. I hope you can learn from my own mistakes and from my own failures. Turn around. Do it now. Go back and pay the bill if you find that your interest is waning. How about in the sense of values? Where have you placed your values? Are your values in eternal things? Are they in things that are spiritual? If you find that your interest is waning, then you need to turn around and do it now. Go back uh, to where you lost out and take up the work again. How about in your standards? I believe that, it's, that standards are important. I think it's something that, uh, that, that uh, holds us to our position in Christ. If we don't have a good set of standards, we're going to slip. We're not going to, to get into the uh, explaining what these standards are. I think that uh, the church has set standards for us. There are standards right there. The church has established standards. But I believe each one of us as individuals need to go even beyond that. Possibly if we only uh, uh, follow the letter of the law, we might still come short of what God would require of us. We need to take a good look as to what is right for our own life. And then in, in light of God's word, we need to set a good set of standards. We think of, of standards for dating. We think of standards for work. We think of, of standards that families set for their children. These are all vital for us. Take a good look at these standards. Are we letting them slip? Take heed. How about personal integrity? How about our word? How, how, how about when it comes to people trusting in our word and honesty and things like this? Are we allowing these things to slip? If so, turn around, go back and pay the bill and do it now. How about our good name and our Christian testimony? I believe that this can be a, a, a warning sign for us also. If we see that we don't no longer have the good name, that we no longer have the respect that we should have, and maybe we're bringing reproach upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we're bringing reproach upon other brothers and sisters and the church. If we find that that is the case, and we know we're guilty, nobody really has to tell us. We don't have to wait until the elder comes. We don't have to wait until the deacons come. You don't have to wait until your parents tell you. I believe that if you've been raised in a Christian home, you know these things. You know the things in the area of standards and good name and values and integrity. You know when you slip. If so, turn around and go back and pay the bill and do it now. Maybe you didn't do it intentionally. You know, most, most things are not done intentionally. Especially, I would say, within the body of Christ. It's not the intentional things that hurt us so bad as it is the unintentional things. The things that we allow ourselves to get away with. Those are the things that's going to destroy us. <clears throat> I 
I have to think of the, the lesson that Jesus gave of the rich young ruler. And he asked the question, what lack I yet? Wouldn't it be good for us if we could all ask ourselves that question? Don't wait until some catastrophe comes. Don't wait until the evil day comes. But ask yourself that question every day. What lack I yet? As we bring our thoughts to a close this evening, I'd like to read a little verse that I have here. And it's called, What Then? It's the title of it, What Then? I don't have the, the author. I've had it in, in my clipping folder for a long time, so I can't tell you where it came from. It says, when all the great plants of our cities have turned out their last finished work, when our merchants have sold their last yardage and dismissed the last tired clerk, when the banks have raked in their last dollar and paid the last dividend, when the judge of the earth says closed for the night and asks for the balance, what then? When the choir has sung its last anthem and the preacher has made his last prayer, when the people have heard their last sermon and the sound has died in the air, when the Bible lies closed on the altar and the pews are all empty of men, when each one stands facing his record and the great book is opened, what then? When the actors have played their last drama and the mimic has made his last fun, when the film has flashed its last picture, and the billboard displayed its last run. When the patrons have paid the last dollar and got out in the, gone out in the darkness again. When the trumpet of ages is sounded and we face the Creator, what then? When the bugle's call sinks into silence and the long marching column stands still. When the captain repeats his last orders and they've captured the fort on the hill. When the flag has been hauled from the masthead, when both vanquished and the victor are gone, and a world that's rejected its savior is asked for a reason, what then? What a message we have in this little verse. Folks, we set things before us that we want to do and accomplish in life. Maybe it's our education. Maybe it's our vocation. Maybe it's many other things. But when you've accomplished that, what then? What then? A young person might say, well, I want to get to be a teenager. But what then? A teenager might say, well, I want to become of age. But what then? A young adult might say, well, I want to get a home. But what then? And those that have gotten a home might say, well, I want to pay off the mortgage. But what then? And those that pay off the mortgage say, well, now I can live the rest of my life in ease. But what then? And when you live the rest of your life in ease, you might say, well, then I'll be an old person. But what then? And after you become an old person, you'll have to say, well, finally, I'll die. But what then? And then you'll have to face the judgment. And what then? It's a very sobering thing, isn't it? That we're all going to stand before the judgment bar of God. 
Yes, indeed, it is sobering. Where will we spend eternity? When we've come to the last mile of the way and we stu stood before the God of all ages, And he says, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. What then? Or on the other hand, if he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, what then? We can enter into the joys of the Lord. Beloved, that's what I want for every one of you that are here tonight. I want you to be able to have that eternal inheritance, that heavenly home that is waiting for all of those that are the redeemed. As we close this service, I'd like to give opportunity for each one of us to make a spiritual investment tonight. We make investments of all different kinds. Those of you that are farmers, you've invested in your farms. Those of you that are students, you've invested your time. I would like to ask each one of us to make a spiritual investment for eternity tonight. Do it now. Do it now. Don't put it off. You know, the Bible says now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, 2. I have to think also of the Ethiopian eunuch that was on his journey in the chariot and Philip was caught up into the chariot. He explained the scriptures to him. And uh, finally they came to a body of water and the eunuch says, Here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And so they stopped the chariot. What did they do? They did it now, didn't they? They did it now. They didn't wait. I'm not trying to criticize anyone who, who would wait a week or, or wait a day if, if, if that's what you feel to do. But on the other hand, let's, let's remember the urgency of the whole gospel message. Do it now. Accept it now. Don't put it off. As we would sing an invitation song at this time, there would be a person here to whom the Spirit has spoken. I would say, do it now. Would you come forward as we would sing this song as an indication of your willingness to do it now? Let us sing.